The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Look with me now in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and uh, verses 1 through 3. Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except in the Holy Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades. This is the word of the Lord. It abides forever, and by his grace and mercy, may it be preached for you. Please be seated. You know, periodically, in preparation for sermons, some people have asked me, you know, Pastor, when do you do your sermon preparation? That's another whole story I could talk about, but won't today. But when I'm asked that, um, the, the fact is, I do something that they say don't do. <laughs> and uh, you say, well, that's pretty obvious, but uh, I don't do it. And I don't do what they say. I do something that they say don't do. And um, what is that? Well, we are constantly told, do not use your devotional life for sermon preparation. Or don't make your sermon preparation, don't substitute devotions, uh, your sermon preparation for your devotions. And I, um, I, I actually do. <laughs> I, let me explain it to you. Every Monday, whatever I'm preaching that Sunday is my devotional time. And it, let me say, I, I understand what they're saying. It's not really for sermon preparation. It's for preacher preparation. I never want to preach a text to the hearts of God's people without it first addressing mine. And so I just try to marinate myself devotionally in that text. Tuesday, Tuesday morning is my time in the text that will be on Sunday night. And so that's kind of where I, I do that. Well, whenever you do that, it starts to evoke certain things uh, in your heart and your mind and, and awareness and, and, and confession. You know, we are in this study of spiritual gifts because our ministry theme this year our ministry theme this year is spiritual, the stewardship, spiritual gift stewardship, discover them, develop them, and deploy them. And, uh, and I've really been burdened for it and, um, and glad to be engaged in it. But I honestly almost feel like I need to repent because we have been doing a ministry theme each year now for 22 years. This never should have been put off to the 22nd year. That's how crucial this is. I mean, it was just last, when we, two weeks ago, started in, uh, we're in 1 Peter 4, these four key texts, remember? 1 Peter 4, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, on spiritual gifts. When we were in 1 Peter 4 that we just confessed and went back and read as our confession today, when we were there and I looked at the context and saw that Peter was getting God's people ready to be pilgrims on the way to the celestial city of the new heavens and the new earth and warning them that everyone who is in Christ will suffer at some time to some degree for Christ in some way. And as he does that, he says in that first Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, in that first Peter four text, he says in that context, where, it, where he gives us the information on spiritual gifts that we studied last week. He gives seven things that are crucial for you to be able to stand up, speak up, stand firm, and, and, do, and do God's work and, and speak his truth in love. And as he does that, um, spiritual gifts are number six. Now, here's what I began to thinking. 
if God's people in a broken world persecuted for Christ, standing with the adversity of the world, the flesh, and the devil against them, and and spiritual gifts are one of the seven essentials to be able to stand firm, why in the world have we not looked at this? Why in the world have we not? So I'm very grateful every year as we're working on the ministry theme, I give a couple of ideas and receive ideas from our elders. And I'm very glad for the elders and a couple of them in particular that were very insistent to to take a look at this this year because I think it's crucial. I, I know as a pastor, I feel somewhat chagrined that I didn't see the importance of it. Uh, I have preached on it years ago, and I've referred to it many times, but to be able to take a look at it and establish a theological framework. Now, today, I think you're going to see why a theological framework, not a functional framework on spiritual gifts, is where you start. Don't start looking at spiritual gifts practically. Start looking at spiritual gifts theologically. And that's what Paul is doing for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So we're going to dive into it. Now remember, we've got four key texts. I've just mentioned them to you. Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, and um, and also um, um, uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. So we're going to work our way through these four texts. And after each one, each one of them have a purpose that I'm trying to highlight. Last two weeks ago, we took a look at First Peter four. And First Peter four, the highlight, what what I think Peter is giving you is the framing principles. Now we're looking at First Corinthians twelve. So we've got the framing principles, and then First Corinthians twelve, we get the we get the understanding, the theological understanding of spiritual gifts. Romans 12, it'll take us a little while to get through 1 Corinthians 12, but Romans 12, we won't have to take as much time because Romans 12 is more or less a distillation of 1 Corinthians 12. It's just a edited version of what he says in 1 Corinthians 12 with some additions. And then the functional dynamic of spiritual gifts is given to us in Ephesians 4, and that's where we'll end up. So in each one, we're going to keep remembering what that, what that text was there to do for us. So, but back up just a little bit. How did we get here? Two years of studying stewardship. So because it's been a couple of weeks and we're now back into this, I'm going to just simply list for you the principles that were established from God's word concerning stewardship. What does it mean to be a steward from God's word? So let me give you those. And there, there, are, um, there are four of them I want to give you in terms of, of them. But remember, um, but, um, but remember uh, where, where we were last Two weeks ago, I keep I, I'm, keep trying to remember. I wasn't here last week. Well, I was here last week, but I didn't preach last week. And so, um, so re, we we established a working definition of spiritual gifts. So here is your working definition. Don't try to don't try to create it as a hashtag. And don't try to create it as a bumper sticker. But here's what it is: a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is a God-designed and God-delivered ministry resource from God to be used in concert with other believers, enabling Christ's church to to effectively exalt Christ by staying by staying on mission, on message, and in ministry. Now, that's what we've been given in this, that a spiritual gift is God-designed. You don't design it. I don't design it. You remember what we just said? He gives us gifts from his varied grace. It's God-designed and God-delivered. It's not hand-delivered. It's heart-delivered. It is delivered right to our heart in his work of grace. It is a spiritual gift, not a natural talent. God gives natural talents. But this is not what we're, we're not looking at natural talents. We're looking at spiritual gifts. In the body of Christ. It's God designed and it's God delivered. It is a ministry resource to be stewarded. You don't want to ignore it. You don't want to misuse it. You don't want to abuse it. 
You want to use it, and when you use it, it is to be used in concert with other believers. That's why that's why spiritual gifts are compared to members of a body. Your hand does not operate apart from your uh, from your arm. Your um, your legs don't operate apart from your torso. That these things are connected. They're interdependent. They work together. No believer has all the spiritual gifts. No local church has all the spiritual gifts. The spiritual gifts are given to the universal body of Christ they are given to be uh, to be employed in concert with others in the body of Christ the ministry those gifts do may extend and usually extends outside the body of Christ but they operate within the body of Christ as we are members one of another before the Lord. And they, um, and so it, then that enables Christ's church, the body of Christ, to effectively exalt Christ by staying on mission, on message, and in ministry. A great commission mission, a great commission message, and a great commission ministry as the body works together. Now, so stewardship is part of what this is. How do I steward my spiritual gift? You want to steward your finances? You've got all kinds of resources God's given you. Whatever you have came from Him. And so I am what I am by the grace of God. So whatever He has given to you, God's called us to steward it. So let me give you what we studied for a couple of years in this four-point distillation about stewardship. These are the four maxims of stewardship. I'm just simply going to give give them to you. Number one, every Christian is called to be a servant and a steward. Remember our key text was 1 Corinthians 4.1. And that where he says that we are servants, where Paul says we are servants of the Lord and stewards. Oikonomos, that's where we get the word economics from. We are stewards and we have an economy of life for Christ as servants to steward what he has given to us. So every Christian is called to be a servant and steward. Secondly, a steward is not the the owner. A steward is not the owner. The steward is owned by the owner. And the owner owns everything that we have. Your life, here's what Paul says, your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God. So we don't own anything. We don't own our our wives, our husbands, our children. We don't own our houses. We understand how we have to operate in the economy of the world. But in the economics, the oikonomos, the stewardship of the kingdom, we own nothing. We are open-handed before the Lord because He owns us and He owns everything He has given to us. If that was ever grasped, that would be life-shaking. That would change everything about the way that we live out of love to Christ. Number three, a Christian steward, what does you do? You're an executor. You allocate. A Christian steward manages, mobilizes, and multiplies their God-given resources as directed by God's Word. You remember the great parables, don't you? The one who had two made it four. The one who had five made it ten. And what, and uh, so that is what we're called to do, to manage these resources, uh, and to mobilize these resources, and to multiply their these God-given resources. How? As directed by the owner. Where does he direct us? In his Word. He directs how we manage, how we mobilize, and how we multiply. Number four, the fourth and final principle, stewards are accountable. Stewards are accountable to the owner. And we know at the day of judgment, while the unbeliever is under the judgment of eternity, we who have been saved for eternal life by the blood of Christ will also be at the judgment and our judgment will be one of stewardship. Our judgment is a stewardship judgment when we are there as believers. What do we, here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, the steward wants to be found faithful. Whenever the owner shows up, 
We want to be doing our job as stewards, managing, mobilizing, and um, uh, and um, multiplying what he has placed in our lives. So that's what we are called to be, stewards, and we are accountable. And what we want to hear on the day of accountability at the judgment is, well done, done. You didn't, you didn't bury the resources I gave you, including your spiritual gift, and ignore it, misuse it, or abuse it. But you used it, according to my word, in the power of the Spirit, as a good and faithful servant. Now, there is one very crucial resources resource that God has given to you, and that's your, your spiritual gift that you are to be a steward over. Now, we framed this uh, two weeks ago from 1 Peter 4. So let me give you the framing principles. There were five of them from 1 Peter 4 that we just a moment ago used as our confession of truth this morning. 1 Peter 4. And that is, as each one has received a spiritual gift, we are to employ it in serving who? One another. For the glory of Christ. That's what he tells us. We are to employ it in serving one another to the glory of Christ. So what did we learn from 1 Peter 4? Well, this was my attempt at humor, and um, I want y'all to know I got more laughs on this attempt at humor um, from y'all than uh, the 1050 service just kind of looked at me. But uh, so I, I believe that we are constantly in a uh, in a Christian reality and entertainment show, aren't we? Christians got talent. That's what Christian. Forget Britain's got talent, America's got talent. Christians got talent. You got natural talents and you got spiritual talents. You have a talent. God has given you your natural talents and God has given you your spiritual talents. Each and every one of you who are authentic Christians, who have a personal relationship with Christ as Lord and Savior. Every one of you have a spiritual gift. Secondly, spiritual gifts are received. They are not invented. They are received. As each one has received a spiritual gift, they have been designed by God and they have been delivered by God. Number three, we are to steward the spiritual gift. As each one has received a spiritual gift, what are we to do? We are to steward that spiritual gift. We are to use it. We are to employ it. We are to engage it in as God's word directs us to. Number four, we learned this. Please don't forget this. There are two interdependent categories. Here's what Peter says. As those who have the gift of speaking, speak the word of God. As those who have the gift of serving, serve by the strength which God supplies. So each one of these spiritual gifts fall into one of two categories. Now, please look at what I said. Interdependent. Why? Because speak, those who have speaking gifts are serving. Those who serve are to speak. But what he's putting them is the weight of the gift is either a speaking gift or a serving gift. You see it reflected even in the offices of the church. The elder teaching uh, office of the church, the diaconal serving office of the church. These are the two categories. They are interdependent, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Number five, we have two indispensable resources for these speaking and serving gifts, these categories. Number one is the word of God. Let him who speak, speak the oracles or the word of God. And those who serve, serve by the strength which God supplies. And what is that? That that strength is the spirit of Christ. That Christ is the power who works within us. So that's where we are. Those are the framing principles. Now... We go to 1 Corinthians 12. Would you go back to those verses that I read with you? And how does it start off? So let's get into 1 Corinthians 12. And then I want to distill some basic principles for you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12 in these opening three verses. Now, 
Concerning spiritual gifts. All right, stop right there. Now, in other words, here's what that now means. I've just dealt with something. Now I'm going to deal with something else. I've I've already addressed one thing. Now I'm going to address this. So we find out that the book of 1 Corinthians, in fact, let me do something else. Let me do something else. I think this is really astonishing and informative. I mean, really astonishing and informative. There are four texts dealing directly with spiritual gifts, right? Hello. Right? Yeah. I mean, you can speak out if you're a Baptist or you can grunt if you're a Presbyterian. Okay? Uh, so, um, so in First Peter 4, when he de- deals with the spiritual gifts, what does he wrap it around with? Above all things, keep fervent in your love for one another. Employ it in serving one another, yes. But as he deals with spiritual gifts, he wraps it in what? The love of Christ to be manifested in our relationships with each other. Folks, I meet a lot of angry Christians. I really do. And it's not righteous. It's merely the anger of man so many times. Whereas we move forward for the work of the kingdom together, it's supposed to be, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. In fact, it's supposed to be so evident that Jesus says it's your most powerful weapon that they come to me when they see how you love one another. My goodness, Um, how we do it doesn't seem to be matching how he did it to us and how he does do it for us. You go to, we go to 1 Corinthians 12. What's the next chapter after 1 Corinthians 12? It's the great chapter on love, isn't it? Love is kind, love is patient, love does not seek its own. If you go to Ephesians chapter 4, how does Ephesians 4 wrapped up? Love one another from the heart. Speak truth and love to one another. Even the text directly on spiritual gifts ends this way. As your gifts are being used, you build one another up in love. There's the hallmark. There's the hallmark. And then uh, Romans 12. In fact, let me just show it to you. I think I was able to quote the others because I think they're maybe familiar to most of you. But Romans 12, which is kind of a distillation of 1 Corinthians 12. Look with me back to Romans 12. It's got the same pattern. you got the spiritual gifts in Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. And we'll be there, Lord willing, after we finish 1 Corinthians 12. We won't be there very long because much of what's in 1 Corinthians 12 is in Romans 12. But uh, in verses 1 through 8 are the spiritual gifts. For the grace of God given to me. And then he talks about spiritual gifts. Then look down to verse 9. What's the next thing he does? Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. So this matter of uh, this matter of the spiritual gifts is put in the sandwich of the love of Christ that is to be evident among the people of God. Then he and what is happening is Paul, Paul spent 18 months in ministry at Corinth. The only place he spent any longer is Ephesus, where he was three years, 18 months at Corinth. And when he left. They sent him a letter because all kinds of issues had come up. There were divisions, factions. Uh, There were people who were uh, exalting themselves. There were people who were attacking others. There was a party spirit. All of that was taking place. And there were all kinds of problems of confusion and chaos. So they sent him a letter 
with seven questions. And 1 Corinthians is Paul's little sermon in the opening four chapters. And then beginning with chapter 5, he starts answering each of those questions. And each question, when it's being answered, starts with this phrase. Now concerning. Now concerning. And so we are at this question where they have sent him about spiritual gifts. The church was in utter chaos because of the abuse of spiritual gifts as, as you're going to see, as they imported the pagan world and life view into the understanding and use of spiritual gifts. And he has got to start correcting that. So here is now concerning spiritual gifts. Here's, here's another thing. Spiritual gifts here. There are two key words that are used to identify spiritual gifts or the reality of spiritual gifts. One is the word charismata. It comes from the Greek word charis, meaning grace, that grace gifts. Remember what Peter said? These are gifts from God's varied grace. So they're called charismata, gifts of grace. But they're also, interestingly, they are also, um, uh, they are also called, um, I was, <laughs> I'm challenged on the pronunciation, yeah, pneumaticos, pneumatico. That means gifts, spiritual gifts. Charismata, grace gifts, pneumaticos, that is spiritual gifts. And so here are these gifts, these spiritual gifts that are being given. And he says, now, brothers. Now, why would he say brothers? Because if you're not a Christian, you don't have them. Only brothers have them. And notice that also, even though they've got problems with this, he still is trying to love them as brothers. And so he then says, I do not want you to be uninformed. This is a word, uh, we, we get the word agnostic from it, agnostos. We get the word agnostic. It means without understanding. It means, m- many times, I like the way the NAS translates it, ignorance. <laughs> I, I love to kind of joke around sometimes, hoping it can be done jokingly, but it's not a joking matter. Someone says to me, well, I'm an agnostic. And I said, oh, so you're ignorant. And uh, what, what do you mean ignorant? And I said, no, you're not really ignorant. Listen, we're, we're not ignorant because all the information we know, we need to know the reality of God has been given. Our problem is not a lack of information. Our problem is a lack of understanding or the suppression of information. I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, here's something. Please get this. That's not a rebuke. That's not a rebuke. That's Paul saying what I said to you at the beginning. He said, I need to teach you this. I should have taught you this. I'm going to correct that right now. You're about to be informed. I don't want you to be uninformed. You see, brothers, you've got to get sisters, you've got to understand that when you become a Christian, you're not a blank slate. You have a new record. Jesus took away your sin and gives you his righteousness. You have a new heart. You're born again. You have a, you have a new family. You have been adopted into the family of God. You have a new perspective. You've got eyes to see and ears to hear. You are on the journey of a new life. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And you've got a new home where you're headed. It's the new heavens and the new earth. What you don't have is a new mind. You still got the same mind. And for all of those years, apart from Christ and those rebellious world and life views that we were submerged and immersed in, they're still with us. And that's why Paul says, now I'm going to start working with you. But look what he says. Look what he says. 
He says, I do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, uh, uh, to be uninformed, brothers. You know. Now, he said, I'm going to start with what you do know. Here's what you know. Discipling always starts with what you know. You know, since you're a brother and a sister in Christ, you know that when you, note the past tense, when you were pagans, we don't identify with our old lives. That's what we were. We are now Christians. We are in Christ and Christ is in us. You know, when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led, and I'm not saying individually, it worked out in individual ways, but all of you, in that life of paganism, you were led to mute idols. It was a pagan lifestyle. Now, when you become a Christian, you got that stuff all over you. As one guy said, you got stinking thinking everywhere. It didn't disappear. You wake up in the morning and the default that comes up is the way you have been taught for years and years and years and years. And the, and the second thing is this. The Christian life is not lived by intuition. The Christian life is lived by divine revelation. So you've got stuff you've learned that you need to unlearn. I don't, is that a word? I don't know, but it just became one. You, what you learned for all those years apart from Christ, you now have to unlearn, and now you want to be taught from the Word of God. We call that discipleship. So Paul is saying, I am starting to correct this with discipleship. Please get this. The preacher, the preacher in evangelism and discipleship does it at one level. That then leads to another level. And then leads to another level. Did Jesus speak the truth to call people to salvation and to train people who were saved and disciple them to big multitudes? Yes. But then he had what? Seventy. Then he had what? Twelve. Then he had what? Three. Discipleship is at every single one of those levels. That's where discipleship. So Paul, as a pastor of this church that planted it, 18 months served it, says, now I'm going to from the pulpit ministry, I'm going to start informing you and discipling you about spiritual gifts. And why do I need to do this? Because you are interpreting spiritual gifts from your pagan world and life view. That's why there's so much problems. That's another reason this should have been handled earlier. Because if it's unbelievable what the whole misunderstandings of spiritual gifts have done to churches and, uh, and denominations. And most of it is because those teaching it are not teaching biblically what spiritual gifts are. They are teaching what the pagan view, an unbelieving, a false view, a man-centered world and life view would teach. And so he says, we are now going to tackle this thing. We're going to tackle it and we're going to deal with it, first of all, by saying we're not going to understand spiritual gifts the way we were led to mute idols in our paganism. We're going to get rid of that. And now we're going to put that off. And now we're going to put on a new mind in Christ to understand this. How many, for instance, let me just give you this. How many problems in the worship wars would be handled if we all committed ourselves to a theology of worship and not judged worship by personal preferences influenced from our unbelieving life and how to evaluate such a moment? Well, the same thing's true about spiritual gifts. We don't take a worldview from the, from, we don't take the worldview of the world to uh, to understand spiritual gifts, we got to start with what God's Word says, which means we've got to undo what we had learned before. And so He now calls them to this um, this reality that when they were um, when they were 
uh, pagans. This is how they were led. That's no longer. Now we are going to uh, be led how? By the Spirit of God with the Word of God. Look at the next verse. Therefore, I want you to understand. No longer not understand. I now want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, do you see what he's saying? First of all, he's saying this. You can't understand spiritual gifts until you're spiritual. And you can't be spiritual until the Holy Spirit converts you to Christ. Spiritual gifts are for Christians. Only Christians have them. Every Christian has one. But most importantly, the same spirit that brought you to Christ to be a Christian is the spirit who gives the gift and with his word teaches you where the gifts come from, why they've been given, and how they are to be used. That's what he is laying down as a basic principle of understanding for us. You were once led by pagans, whether it was Artemis or Zeus or uh, Ares or Mars or whatever it is, God that you were serving and wanted to serve. That's what was guiding you. Now you're guided by the Spirit of God who brought you to Christ so that you could say Jesus is Lord. Now, what is it? Here's what he's saying. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking of the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. For all of you that keep asking, I understand why you're asking. What is the unpardonable, unpardonable sin? He's telling you what it is. What does the Holy Spirit bring you to say? Jesus is Lord and Savior. So if the Holy Spirit is at work in you and calling you and you say Jesus is a curse, A, the Holy Spirit didn't give you that. What did you do? You rejected what the Holy Spirit is telling you to do. And therefore, instead of coming to Christ as Lord and Savior, you called Christ accursed, anathema. Well, he, then when you do that, you have rejected the only one that can save you. That's why it's an unpardonable sin. It's a sin that keeps you from the only one who can pardon us. Who can save us. But when the Holy Spirit is doing his work and you surrender, you surrender to Christ as not only Savior, but Lord. So enough of this. Come to Christ as Savior, later as Lord. No, he doesn't offer himself on the a la carte menu. He is Lord and Savior. And when you are converted to him as Savior, you have bowed to him as Lord. Now, God, go to work on my mind so that we can go to work on my life and know how to live in and for Christ as Lord and as Savior in all of life. And so he says, I I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is a curse. No one, here's the key word, can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. He just told you a great theological truth. Do you know what that is? You and I are not sin sick. We're sin dead. You can't. Receive Jesus as Savior and Lord until you are born again. Can't do it. Now, you can mouth the words. Yes, you can, in a service, be emotionally drawn to, quote, unquote, respond to an altar call or an invitation. Give one every Sunday, invite you to Christ, invite you to pray with someone. And you can come and mouth the words, but not from the heart. Until the Holy Spirit who calls you gives you a new heart. And when he gives you a new heart and you come to Christ as Savior, you surrender as Lord. Now we're setting up Christ as steward, Christ as owner of our gifts and us as stewards of our Lord in the use of our gifts. That's what he's establishing That's what he's affirming. That's what he's putting into place. And so he is our Lord and we have now come to him. He's not rebuking. He's pastoring. He is not 
um, he is not demeaning. He is preaching and teaching to give them the theology of where you start in understanding spiritual gifts so they can get rid of the confusion and the division that the misuse, abuse, or non-use of these gifts were causing in that particular congregation at Corinth. Now, let me just mention one other thing. I will give you your takeaways and we'll close in prayer. What are the marks of paganism? What are the marks of paganism? Well, I'm deeply indebted to a number of authors, including my friend uh, Alistair Begg on this one. Uh, And if you dig down um, uh, to begin to understand what this is in first century, well, mute idolatry. Notice he says mute idols. (laughs) You talk to them, they can't talk to you. Well, Pastor, I talked to Jesus. Does he talk to me? Yep, right here. Sixty-six books, he left it for you. And now he's made it available to every single one of us. Nobody has to have just a private conversation. You can personally talk with him, but he's given his word that we can know his mind to us. How, what are the marks? The marks of idolatry is self-absorption. And it is manifested by a fascination with dramatic experiences. A fascination with dramatic experiences. We call it uh, FOMO here today. Fear of missing out. I want the next experience. So there is this fascination with with, uh, dramatic experiences. There is an abdication to the gratification of appetites. And there is a depraved embrace of sexual immorality. I like the way, as I said, Alistair summed it up. We want to be in the know. We want an experience that is powerful. And we want, and we want it to be all about us. Paganism is the ecstatic, the dramatic, and the mystic. That's what comes from idolatry of mute idols. Now, I know most of us are sitting here saying, yeah, that's silly paganism. (laughs) That's silly paganism, you know, thinking that Zeus is it or Mars is it or or Diana, Artemis, Aries. Uh, How silly can you be? Well, brothers and sisters, there's a reason that I have continually said we are in an age of of neo-paganism, developing a culture of insanity, immorality, lethality, and um, absurdity. You think their gods are silly? You ought to take a look at ours. We think our possessions are going to save us, and we worship them. We don't use them for him. We worship them. We become fanatics of sports. We build our life, our economy around these things. It is what I possess, who I control, what I have power over, what I experience. That's why Jesus says, we're going to look at this next week. That's why Jesus warns us through Paul, in the last day, the Antichrist is going to have a field day because everyone will be suspect to his false signs, wonders, and miracles that are done with power. They become fascinated with it. We want the dramatic. We want the ecstatic. We want the self-aggrandizing. We want the mystic instead of God's word, God's spirit bringing us to him. Well, Satan obviously uses our old man and our old mind, but the Lord is ready to change us.
So let me give you these three takeaways. I'm just going to give them to you. Number one, what, what is Paul teaching us? To understand spiritual gifts, you've got to, to discover, develop, and deploy your spiritual gifts, we've got to have conversion clarity. This is for people who have been converted through the power of the Spirit and brought to Christ as Lord. Spiritual gifts, only, let me put it this way, only the converted have spiritual gifts. How did you get, how did you get, um, how did you get uh, converted to Jesus as Savior and Lord? You were brought to Jesus as Savior and Lord by God's grace through the work of the Holy Spirit. What about spiritual gifts? Spiritual gifts are received from God, by God, and they come to you from Christ through the Holy Spirit. So until you have come to Christ for, in salvation by the power of the Spirit, you can't receive spiritual gifts by Christ from in the Spirit. So the first thing is conversion. So my call today is Christ to you, you to Christ, that the Spirit of God would bring you to him who died to save you. Yes, you receive a spiritual gift, but when you receive Jesus, that spiritual gift doesn't become something to idolize or to put on the shelf until it's convenient. It becomes something to use for him who has saved me from my sins and who is now Lord to whom I will answer for the use of that gift. So only the converted have spiritual gifts. You're converted by the Spirit of God to Christ as Christ sent the Spirit of God to you. And you can't receive the spiritual gifts from God until you have come to God by Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Father who designed your gift, Jesus who secured your gift, the Holy Spirit who delivers your gift, is the same Father who authored your salvation, the same Son who accomplished your salvation, and the same Spirit who applied your salvation. Until that is done, then the spiritual gifts, number one, will not be delivered, and number two, cannot be used. Number Number two, spiritual gift stewardship to discover, develop, and deploy spiritual gifts is discipleship necessity. We have got to, we have all showed up to Christ with baggage. Discipleship from the pulpit first to a congregational community next to a small group next, you need all three of those, is unpacking the old baggage to repack it with the truths of God's Word. That's what it's doing and that's what we need. Discipleship necessity so that we don't follow the mute idols of this world. Number three, what Paul is ultimately telling us, to be a steward of a spiritual gift and to discover, develop it, and deploy it, you've got to have a God-glorifying, self-denying humility. I don't invent the gifts. Now listen to me. I don't discover the gifts. I don't develop the gifts. I don't deploy the gifts. The one who gives me the gifts is the one who enables me to discover them, develop them, and deploy them for the kingdom. It's not from me. It's not about me. It's from him, and it's about him as I engage with his people to exalt him. As we go further into this, I'll close with prayer. Here's the amazing thing I've seen so many times in the Bible and in life. You can't have spiritual gifts until you're converted. What's interesting to me is the status from which people are converted. Can I just use me? What's Moses? Murder. What does he become? An emancipator. Here's Peter. What is he? A traitor. Denier. What does he become? He becomes a leader and one who is faithful to Christ. Paul, what is he? A religious terrorist. He kills Christians and destroys churches. What does he become? Perhaps the greatest evangelist and church planter. I look at my own life. Violent. Now I get to shepherd. 
profane, vulgar, and blasphemous, with a mouth that spewed rebellion against God. Now I get to preach the word of God. It's astonishing how great God's grace is. Where our rebellion, he not only forgives us and transforms us, but even our spiritual gifts are a statement of the power of his grace as he takes our rebellion and turns it into his instrument to serve him. Selfish become the great statements of hospitality. I've seen it time and time again. But it only comes to those, one, who are converted, those two who are discipled as we unpack and repack, three, those who, with to glorify God and deny themselves, humble themselves, God, it's of you, from you, and to you. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. Thank you for the privilege to walk our way through this text. Would you plant it deeply in our hearts? If today, I just a while ago invited you to Christ, if you've come seeking today, there will be some up here at the front who would love to pray with you. The rest of you, would you join me in this journey of not only framing spiritual gifts, but understanding spiritual gifts? Not from the world's perspectives and philosophies, which inundate us, but from his word and by his spirit and to his glory. And would we stay amazed not only at the grace that saves us, but the grace of God that gifts us to serve our Savior and Lord. Jesus, please do do this, I pray. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.